I didn't realize well, that's that. an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that. So let's talk about that. Let's talk you know, about. I think the... you need to come over, stand in my shoes, agree to disagree. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Each week on the show, we take a topic people feel strongly about, and we go searching for perspectives that help us feel more empathy, hope, maybe a little challenged. We're not trying to change your mind. We just think in a world that is so divided, there's power in thinking more deeply about why we see things the way we do. Today's topic, obvious faith. Typically in sick families, you start wearing a turban when your hair is long enough to tie in a bun on top of your head. So three or four was when we really started wearing a turban. Simranjit Singh was born in America. His parents are immigrants from Punjab in northern India. From the age of three, Singh's religious identity as a Sikh has been clearly visible to all. He's never without his turban, and never without the judgment or fear it often triggers in others. There was a woman, elderly woman, who had fallen uh, in the crosswalk in in Manhattan, just outside of our apartment building. Um, And I saw her and I went over to help her. It's New York City, so it's it's not the safest place to be laying on the street. And so I wanted to get her up quickly. And I, and I reached my hand down to, to help her up. And she reached her hand up uh, to grab mine. And then she looked up and saw my face. And she immediately just like pulled her arm back um, and yelled at me to go back to where I came from. I didn't want to force her to take my help. Uh, that didn't feel right. Mm-hmm. Um, And it also didn't feel right to leave her there as the lights were about to turn and, you know, the New York City cabs were about to rush over. And so I quickly looked around and saw a couple of people who weren't looking, didn't notice, um, but I I urged them to come over and help her up. And I just watched and made sure uh, that she was taken care of and got to the sidewalk uh, and went on my way. As ugly as that moment was and as sharp of a reminder it was to me, Uh, about how people see me, uh, there was something rewarding in that moment about being able to say, I I was proud of how I responded uh, when we walked away. The freedom to believe and express those religious beliefs is embedded in America's founding documents. But relatively few of us in this country are part of a faith that requires us to be obviously religious in our daily lives. Wearing the turban of Sikh devotion or the hijab for Muslim women or the side curls and yarmulke of Orthodox Judaism. The majority of religious Americans are Christian. For us, I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. There's always the option of wearing something, a piece of jewelry, a t shirt maybe, that displays our religious identity, but it's not obligatory. What if all of us who adhere to a religious tradition wore that identity publicly? I wonder, would I be a better disciple of Christ if everywhere I went, people knew that's what I claimed to be? But there are downsides too, right? At least in America today, there's fear and misunderstanding and frankly, racism that means someone wearing a shiny cross around his neck is likely to be treated very differently from someone wearing a turban. So today we are thinking more deeply about how much we as individuals and as a society really value religious diversity and public expressions of faith. My parents are immigrants. They were born in um, North India, immigrated to the States in the 70s. Simranjit Singh's parents ultimately settled in San Antonio, Texas. They felt it was as close to home as they could imagine. It was uh, hot weather, <laughs> uh, kind kind people, uh, spicy food. But I think it was really the culture that drew them in, the, the sort of warmth of community where people really sort of live and let live. And, and that, that was really enticing to them. Were there a lot of other families with little boys wearing turbans when you mm, were growing up in San Antonio? <laughs> not, not at all. Uh, there, there are more now. But when we were growing up, uh, my brothers and I were the only kids. Like our mm. friends who knew us didn't really care that we wore turbans or looked different. They only cared that the Sing boys could play ball. I mean, soccer was soccer was life for me, and uh, and our team was super competitive. Singh was always the only kid on the field wearing a turban. He was often targeted by other teams, called racist slurs, challenged by refs who insisted he take off his turban in order to play. But Singh's teammates and coaches stood up for him, even threatened to boycott games until the ref backed down. Now, Singh's parents were not going to let him stop wearing the turban to make things easier. And he says he never really pressed for that. 
but... There have certainly been moments where life gets hard, and I think about, and, and those moments come even today, where I, where I wonder um, what life would be like if, if I didn't look this way. How did your parents explain to you the reasons why it was worth taking the risk that you would be mistreated? So I'm, I'm cringing as you ask that question because it's, this is a story that I feel uh, a lot of shame around. In his memoir called The Light We Give, Singh describes this moment as a turning point in his sick identity. I went to the grocery store with my mother. I must have been about 12, 13, um, old enough to know better. Um, but I, I grabbed a, uh, a candy bar uh, at the checkout line when she wasn't looking or when I thought she wasn't looking uh, and put it in my bucket. Uh, and I looked up and, and she was looking at me. And I, I still remember her eyes got wide. Um, this sort of surprise mixed with confusion, uh, like her trying to process if what she was seeing was actually true. Um, and I just immediately pulled the candy bar out of my pocket and, and gave it to her. And, and we went home. We didn't say anything. And uh, eventually uh, I, went, I went to her room to apologize. And, you know, I, I was expecting her to give me a lecture on or to, to punish me for being dishonest, um, for stealing, for, you know, all, all the things that felt more obvious. But instead, Singh's mom asked him if he knew the story of the Sikh religious leader called a guru who was tortured and executed in the 17th century for standing up to the emperor in defense of another religious group that was being persecuted. Singh knew the story because it's famous. He says all Sikh children learn it. But he didn't know it was also the origin of the turban in Sikh tradition. The way his mother explained it, after the guru was murdered, no one in the Sikh community dared come forward to claim his body. The guru's son, who was the new leader of the faith. He was pained by this and said, you know, we don't, as a community, ever hide from our, our principles. And we're going to adopt an identity that makes us stand out in a crowd. Hmm. And that will ensure that we are always accountable for living by what we what we say, for, for practicing what we preach. My mom, in that conversation, she said, well, if that's not something you're willing to do, then, then maybe you should think about not wearing your turban. Up until that point in my life, she'd been the one encouraging me to wear a turban and, and defending me and, and telling me, don't listen to people who judge you because of, because of your turban or tell you you should take it off. And all of a sudden, now she was saying, maybe you don't deserve to wear one um, or maybe you don't understand the value of it. So it was, it was a really powerful moment for me in understanding the, the moral force that could be cultivated by, by wearing a turban every day. Several years later, when Singh was a senior in high school, Al-Qaeda attacked the United States on 9-11. Now, Singh is Sikh. He's not Muslim. But that did not spare him the racist slurs and death threats. And the question of why he wore his turban became more pressing. It's creating some kinds of challenges for me. I should really understand if it's worth it. And I, at that point, I didn't really know what the worth was. He says the Sikh tradition is not entirely clear about the reasons for the turban, and he needed a reason in the face of daily harassment. So Singh studied and searched. And it was finally in an analogy that someone shared with me. And, and the analogy they gave me was one of a wedding ring. The wedding ring has more than the intrinsic value. Like wh whatever you buy it for is one thing. But if you're wearing it, it means so much more to you. And it's personal, and it's a signifier of a relationship. And if you lose that wedding ring, you can't just replace it with something that's equivalent or similar or comparable. It's that particular article itself that has the meaning. And, and the connection they made, and this is where it clicked for me, is that the wedding ring, like the turban, uh, is a product of a relationship of love. And so for me, the turban, I see it as a gift from my gurus. And these are the people we admire, the people that we try and emulate and live our lives in accordance with their teachings. Mm -hmm. 
Would you share, I mean, I'm going to ask you in one sentence to summarize your entire faith tradition, but, <laughs> but um, can, you, can you mention for me some of those core principles? Sure. Yeah. The, the core principles as I would identify them are um, uh, oneness, love, service, uh, justice, integrity. Oneness is maybe the one that's the least easy to deduce just from the word. So how would you define that? Um, it, within the Sikh worldview, the, the teaching, and, and it's the first teaching we learn as Sikhs, um, and it's the first teaching my parents learned and, and that I've learned and my, my kids have learned, it's, it's the belief that uh, all of the world is interconnected uh, through a single force. The, the essential point is, if everything is equally divine, then who are we to judge? Since discovering that wedding ring analogy that helped things click into place, Singh's challenge has been to figure out how to see his visible Sikh identity as a blessing, not a burden, each time it provokes unkindness in others. His initial instinct is often to deflect with humor. A lot of the times, um, I'll put on my Texas accent, which I... Uh, Can we hear it? Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Um, if, if so someone... if I say, go back to where you came from. Oh, thank you. I'd love to go back to Texas. <laughs> I, just apply, I mean, I haven't, I haven't really used it so much in the last few decades. But um, You really did shed it pretty well. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it, so there's humor flies. on the one to sort of like gently invite people to interrogate exactly what they're saying and the, and the, you know, and, and the assumptions that they're making. There, yeah, and it's, it's also a safety mechanism. Like it's, let me, let me cut the tension rather than escalating it and leave you confused while I walk away and, and go enjoy my life. And I, I don't feel any type of compunction about that. Sometimes um, you, you choose to engage further, try to have a conversation. Uh, would you tell us about the time you were running and the two young black men um, called out yeah. to you? Yeah. I mean, it, there there are occasions where it feels like it's worth stopping. It, it, it all depends on context and uh, you sort of develop a sense of when it might actually be worthwhile uh, to engage. But there was, there was one day I was running home from my office at NYU um, going up the West Side Highway. It was part of my marathon training route. I was wearing my, my sneakers, yeah, my running shorts, my, my T-shirt uh, and my turban. And um, and I had my headphones in, but I could hear just just enough. I could hear someone yell out "Osama" with with a few colorful adjectives, and they yelled it out a few times. And I at first ignored them, but I felt like I, I should say something uh, that would potentially lead to to something productive. And at first, he tried to. He, he just said sorry, and mm -hmm. and, I, and I, you know, my my inner dad <laughs> came out, mm -hmm. and I was like, let's let's have a quick conversation. Uh, this this won't be that easy uh, to just dismiss me. And um, the conversation was probably less than thirty seconds. You know, at first, I, I said a couple of things along the lines of why it was messed up and why it hurt, and and then and then I said something like, you know, I, I it's it's sensitive, right? Like you don't you don't want to lecture someone. You want you want to invite them in. And so I said something like, you know, perhaps um, you've, you've experienced this kind of racism too and you know what it feels like. And, you know, I didn't say you should know better, but I just invited him to, to reflect on how his experience might connect with mine. And that's when the sympathy turned to empathy. Like I, I saw his eyes register uh, what I was saying and, and his, I mean, it just turned into sincerity. And, and he was like, I'm, I'm so sorry. And, and that was it. Like, that's, that's all I needed. Like, I felt good about the outcome. And he felt better. I mean, he said, thank you. And I said, thank you. Like, that's not how these exchanges usually go. Uh, and I turned around and kept running. And it was just this simple difference of stopping to talk to one another and listen to one another that... I mean, I would have been annoyed the rest of my run. It would have ruined the rest of my run. I probably would have been annoyed that evening because I went to bed and it changed my day, right? Mm -hmm. Like it was, it was a great outcome. And I, I don't think every encounter goes that way. Um, and, and I don't think everyone should stop and engage people who are being hurtful uh, in, in, in that way. Uh, but in this moment, it was, it was a, 
it felt like, again, it's this feeling of, and this is what I think the 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 attempt to live by one's principles really invites. Um, it's the difference between walking away from these moments feeling upset versus feeling like I handled this in the way that I would have liked to. Hmm. And that that's that creates a different kind of inner peace. Simranjit Singh is executive director of the Aspen Institute's Religion and Society program. He's author of the new book, The Light We Give, How Sick Wisdom Can Transform Your Life. Thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be with you. Like Simranjit Singh, Justin McLean also has brown skin and wears a visible symbol of his faith. But the encounters he has in public tend to be very different. People might say, for instance, ah, so you're wearing uh, a cross. Do you believe in Jesus? And I uh, am able to share that. And uh, and I love when people want to talk to me uh, about Jesus or about matters of faith. When you encounter a stranger wearing a Christian symbol, what split-second assumptions do you make about that person? And how does that response on a sort of gut level compare to the way you perceive someone in a turban or headscarf? This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Within Catholicism, there's no requirement, at least for lay Catholics, to have a visible or outward uh, expression of faith. Justin McLean is a Catholic educator and author in the Washington, D.C. area. I choose to wear a cross or crucifix and typically my rosary on my belt loop so that somebody seeing that can hopefully draw his or her mind to Christ. He relishes the reactions he gets in public. I have a lot of very funny encounters and they happen relatively frequently. And that is when an employee of an organization who perhaps can't openly evangelize or so forth uh, sort of leans in and says something uh, of faith. Once in a governmental facility, I walked up to the desk in order to receive some help with something. And the person noticed my cross and sort of uh, leaned in and said, Merry Christmas. And I just had to sort of laugh myself because the person you know, gave me a certain uh, certain look that I knew that perhaps this person can't always uh, express this. And I said right back, Merry Christmas. There are many moments like that that I have uh, in which uh, somebody feels perhaps a, a, a connection there uh, that encourages the person to offer some manifestation of faith. Mm-hmm. And again, it's, it's all with, uh, with goodwill. McLean's decision to wear a crucifix and rosary beads, to be visibly Catholic, developed from his conversion to the faith, or really reconversion. I was uh, raised Catholic. Uh, my parents were both converts to Catholicism. I was that student in school who questioned everything and really looked for the errors in doctrine uh, that I was certain were there within Catholicism, and I asked those difficult questions. And I eventually drifted away from my faith. I stopped uh, attending Mass. I was no longer uh, really even identifying as a Catholic. I simply didn't uh, take my faith as seriously. I was uh, consumed by uh, materialism and, and the world and all of these distracting things. And 9-11 happened when I was in college. It was right at the beginning of my sophomore year at the University of Maryland. I didn't personally know anybody who passed during 9-11, but just seeing the magnitude of death and destruction and evil that occurred on that day, for me, that was a wake-up call about the shortness and brevity and futility of life. So over the next few years, I started going to the Catholic Student Center there at the University of Maryland and I came to know a good and holy priest, Father Bill Byrne, and Father Bill invited people to embrace their faith joyfully. So at first I discerned that that was uh, to the priesthood and I was accepted into the seminary and I spent an academic year there. And although I later discerned that I was called to marriage and family life, that year was still monumentally important for me because it was a time of growing in my faith and continually opening myself up to what God wanted me to do. 
So faith is instrumental in my life and within my family. Uh, my wife and I, uh, her name is Bernadette, take very seriously our faith life within our home. And we encourage uh, the sacramental life and prayer, and we center our lives on that. And the crucifix he wears on his belt loop helps him to keep Jesus Christ always in mind. So no matter what we may encounter from one day to the next, we have that faith in the risen Lord. So a crucifix is a reminder that life features suffering, but likewise that we attach that suffering to the cross, that Jesus helps us to carry the cross, uh, that we are not in this alone, so to speak. Do you feel like you have to behave in a certain way because you are wearing those emblems? I definitely do. And um, one example is that I always have a rosary hanging from my rearview mirror. And I'm literally a driving representation of the Catholic faith. So I have to make sure to drive carefully. Uh, and if I accidentally uh, slightly veer into someone's lane or you know, might, might get a blast of the horn or so forth, or somebody veers in, into, into my lane, I'm not really in a position to say anything unkind or offer any sort of inappropriate gesture because then that person might say, hmm, that person is, is acting in that inappropriate way, yet he has a, uh, a rosary hanging from his mirror. Is that how all Catholics are? That's just one example of McLean says the reaction from other people to his cross and rosary beads has never been negative or threatening, certainly not like it might be if you were wearing a turban. But he says just being openly religious at all feels kind of risky right now as Christian church membership declines and more Americans identify as having no religious affiliation. I've heard of late of, of friends and associates being denied promotions and the tone noticeably changed uh, within their particular uh, workplace when their religious convictions as Catholics uh, and as other Christians were uh, were known that all of a sudden uh, there was a, a much higher scrutiny or uh, perhaps the, the slightest infraction that previously would have gone overlooked. But despite any risk it may carry, McLean encourages other Christians to make their faith visible. Because of two reasons. Uh, the first is the effect that it has on the wearer. You know, when you put on your cross in the morning, uh, or if, if you glance in the mirror and see that you're wearing the cross, ah, right, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I need to make sure to act like it. So there's the personal impact that it has, and also the impact on others in terms of inviting others to consider, wow, this person is proud of Jesus. Uh, he or she is wearing this outward sign of faith. Maybe I could look deeper into what it means to be a Christian and who Jesus is and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Justin McLean is a veteran Catholic educator in K-12 schools in the D.C. area, and he's author of several books, including Called to Teach, Daily Inspiration for Catholic Educators. Now, he has chosen to be obviously religious, Asma Yudin felt forced to choose the opposite. Somehow my wearing this scarf is not just about me anymore and about my own spiritual quest or even about my community. It's now become a political symbol. Um, and I think the more I sort of like really kind of carried that weight with me, that's what ultimately I think led to my stopping wearing it. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. Asma Yudin grew up Muslim in Miami, Florida. Her parents immigrated from Pakistan. My dad had the entire Quran memorized, um, and he used to recite it every morning. You know, he was also a major community leader, like in uh, the city of Miami and actually outside of Miami as well, in various states across the nation, where he was, as a civil engineer, like designing mosques, as a successful civil engineer, funding the building of these mosques, uh, running um, the Sunday school, teaching at the Sunday school, uh, he was leading the prayers in Ramadan, uh, the night prayers that generally require someone who has the entire Quran memorized. And so I really grew up not just in a space where it was like very spiritual, but also very like religiously learned and also like had this very public presence. 
And yet, she says, the women in her family, her mother, her sister, her cousins, did not wear the hijab. That's the head covering that many Muslims consider obligatory for women and teenaged girls. You know, I think that a lot of misconceptions around women who wear headscarves is I was somehow forced on them by their father. And I'm just like, well, that certainly wasn't like in our home. It was like he had every reason to want us to wear it, but I, I never got that pressure or anything. Yudin chose to start covering her head when she went to college. It was something that my older sister, who's four years older than me, had started, um, I think, when I was still in high school. And I had just sort of set it as his goal that when I get to college, it's sort of like a nice, clean starting point. Um, I'm going to start wearing the headscarf. She wanted Islam to be a prominent part of her adult identity. She was drawn to the sense of sisterhood among Muslim women who wore the hijab on campus at the University of Miami, where she enrolled. And she wanted to deepen her relationship with God. The aspect of like, this is required of you and like to be a good Muslim. And, and I was very keen on being a good Muslim because I was just someone who was always drawn to my religion, always felt like I was in conversation with God. And so I wanted to do it because I wanted to please God. She wore the head covering for seven years through her undergraduate studies and law school. But toward the end of that time, 9-11 happened. By that point, her commitment to wearing hijab had begun to waver. My mom wasn't terribly keen about my wearing it. So I also, I was dealing with that resistance as well. But the big one for me was the fact that the same community that I had mentioned before that had kind of adopted the headscarf and was the reason I had begun to think of this to begin with was very, I found over time, consistently pretty hypocritical about it in the sense that they kind of saw it as a sign of being really devout. But then I also simultaneously kind of saw them backbiting about women and girls who didn't wear it. And that, that to me just was like really fundamentally just sort of problematic where I was like, you can't do that. Like, I'm pretty sure saying really mean things about people or judging others for not wearing it um, or not wearing it to your liking to like, you know, the way that you think is proper I'm pretty sure that's way worse in the eyes of God than whether or not you're wearing a scarf on your head. And then post 9-11, I think like it started to get pretty uncomfortable because I think it's now become a political symbol. So now if you're going to go out, even if you need to go to the grocery store or a quick run and you're wearing a headscarf, like you're really kind of out there, not just as yourself, but as a political spokesperson. And so everything I did or said kind of uh, mattered on this like bigger national and global scale. Mm. It became a burden, it sounds like. Absolutely became a burden. And a threat to her safety. Muslim women wearing the hijab were harassed and assaulted in the days and weeks after 9-11. Yudin spoke with a prominent Muslim scholar who assured her she could stop wearing the hijab and still be a good Muslim because the political situation had undermined the intent of the commandment. And so I think that moment where I just realized finally that I could let go of this thing that had just become bigger and bigger burden over the years and like still be a, a really good Muslim, if I could be a better one, because I could now focus on the spiritual component. Uh, I, I really had gotten to a point where I felt like wearing it was taking me further away from God than as opposed to drawing me closer. And I'm like, if it's no longer serving the function that it's supposed to serve and then for which I had adopted it, um, then why am I even wearing it, right? So did you did you resent at all that you were forced to make this decision? Yeah, absolutely. It's been 15 years now. Eudine has become a prominent scholar of religious liberty in the U.S. She's a visiting law professor at Catholic University of America and a fellow in the Religion and Society program at the Aspen Institute. One of her books is called When Islam is Not a Religion. The title references the fact that since 9-11, it's become common for American lawmakers and lawyers to argue that Islam is not a religion, that it's a political ideology. And therefore, one, doesn't get the same protections that religion does, but then also can, is something that we can stamp out, um, that we can resist. And so suddenly, if a woman working at a Disney restaurant wants, this is an actual case, wants to be able to wear a headscarf as part of a uniform, suddenly that woman's request is part and parcel of a global agenda to take over Western democracy, as opposed to just this woman wanting to wear a headscarf. Disney settled the case with that restaurant employee and has in recent years begun allowing workers who are sick or Muslim to deviate from its strictly prescribed Disney look. Many other employers have faced similar complaints 
and have generally had to accommodate religious garb. Abercrombie and Fitch was sued for rejecting a job applicant who wore a hijab to the interview. That case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which ruled in favor of the Muslim woman who applied for the job. The history of restricting religious clothing in America might surprise you, says Asma Yudin. You know, the earlier instances had to do with nuns wearing habits. This country had many years of sort of rampant and fierce anti-Catholicism, where there were, you know, riots and mobs in the streets, like churches and homes being burned down. Um, And of course, legal measures as well. A lot of them are actually geared toward schools and trying to stop the influence of Catholicism and and Catholic leaders in a public school setting, whether it be deciding which version of the Bible was being read, whether it be to prevent nuns wearing habits from being public school teachers, uh, because that was considered kind of like this Catholic way of influencing these impressionally young minds. And so these these anti-religious garb statutes were on the books for you know, on, you know, across the nation um, and currently are still on the books in just one state in Pennsylvania. But it's only been a few years since they were repealed in places like Oregon uh, and Nebraska. Today, the issue has most often come up in the context of Sikhs and Muslims looking to serve in the military or work in law enforcement. And Eudine says the courts have allowed some restrictions on religious clothing. There's two reasons why um, there will be resistance. And one of them is that there's like this issue of morale and uniformity that like being uniform is like pretty core to like what we're trying to do here. And so therefore, if men, as men in the military have to cut their hair short, but if you're suddenly allowed to grow really long and, and to grow a really long beard, um, then that's something that's taking away from this uniformity requirement, which then also impacts the morale. And the second concern there is that this also has to do with safety concerns. Um, so in the context of the Muslim man in the Navy, it was like, well, there's like this gas mask. You should be able to fit over your, your head properly. And if you have this beard, it won't fit properly. So these are all, I think, legitimate and even compelling sort of rationales. Right. But the law requires the sort of like this extra kind of narrow tailoring, as it's called in the, in the law, uh, to make sure that this, that the government entities in this case are actually thinking through, like, is there a way that we can achieve both a religious accommodation and our very totally valid and compelling interest in uniformity, morale, safety? Hmm. That, that's where the case law is kind of pushing um, for there to be some sort of more careful considerations as opposed to these very sort of general or generic assumptions that there's no way to make this work. So from a legal perspective, I think that the ability to wear religious garb as a form of religious exercise or religious expression in the United States is pretty widely protected. In the court of public opinion, though, says Eudine, it's a different story. If you just look at the comments sections on like different articles, even in places like the New York Times, you know, for example, there was a case in 2015 involving a Muslim woman in a headscarf who challenged uh, the Abercrombie and Fitch look policy. And that case went to the Supreme Court and she won. So again, not a lot of success legally in these things. But then you see some of the commentary there is absolutely like, oh, why does she need to wear this? And this is just, um, you know, fundamentally kind of like makes me uncomfortable when I see these people wearing it. Are legal protections really all that helpful if people wearing religious clothing have to contend with fear, disgust or dismissal when they're in public? America is a religiously diverse nation and ostensibly proud to be so. It's enshrined in our Bill of Rights. But does that diversity undermine national unity? The government of France thinks so. It bans conspicuous religious symbols, hijabs in particular, in public schools and athletic competitions and many other public places. French authorities argue these things are divisive and contrary to the nation's secular identity. Asma Yudin would like to believe that a nation can be united by its religious diversity. Being publicly visible with our religious symbols like ties us together because we have something else that we share that, con- that connects us. Mm. Um, and that is our sort of respect for and love and an appreciation for the role of religion tied to our ideas of what is our purpose in this world, what are our duties to a higher being often. And it's so core to who people are that if you allow sort of this flourishing of authenticity and like the full sort of like diversity of that expression, then you have a space that is just vibrant and allows us to learn from each other and to connect at at a level that's just beyond sort of like the superficial. 
Asma Yudin is an attorney specializing in religious liberty. Her books include When Islam is Not a Religion and The Politics of Vulnerability. If it's possible for a society of religious people from different faiths to be united by their shared belief in something bigger, why is the opposite so often the case? In part because people are so convinced that their religious community, their religious beliefs are the right ones and perhaps the only ones. This is Diana Eck from Harvard Divinity. You know, we have a constitution that guarantees freedom of religion, uh, freedom of religious practice, but we may respond to people rather differently as uh, Jews or Christians or Muslims than we do as co-citizens in the kind of democratic republic we have. Eck is the founder of the Pluralism Project at Harvard University, which studies religious diversity in America. And she says pluralism is the key to religion uniting rather than dividing. I think what really makes a difference is, is, is a kind of engagement. Pluralism isn't just diversity because we know that diversity is just a fact of our society. Um, it's not just tolerance because we realize that, um, that there are many situations in which uh, our ability to simply ignore the fact that we're different um, puts us in, uh, in jeopardy of, uh, of, of really losing the fundamental fabric of relationship that's part of our culture. And also that pluralism isn't just watering everyone's beliefs down to some lowest common denominator, but um, actually realizing that we need to know one more about one another in order to live together as co-citizens, whether it's in, you know, Houston, Texas, or in Boston, or, you know, in Oklahoma City. One way to approach diversity of religious views as our communities get more diverse is for everybody to say, okay, you do your thing, I'll do my thing, nobody force their thing on anybody else, we'll just all kind of do our faith in our own corners. Um Tolerance, I guess you could call that. Yeah. Um, what effect does that have in a community? Uh, it's a pretty thin te- uh, foundation, actually. I mean, tolerance is is good in a general sense, but tolerance won't take us very far when we're really um, encountering, coming up against the diversities that are ours today. And one of the things that the Pluralism Project has started to study and make case studies of are the ways in which these um, these religious differences pose real dilemmas uh, for city councils, for schools, for legislatures. These are not things you can just sort of paste over and say we're all different and so so what? Because those differences are consequential. Give an example, uh, would you? I mean, case studies include what can you wear at work, for example? Can a Muslim woman go to work wearing her headscarf or her job? Does she have to wear, um, you know, a, a, a pizza company hat over it or something like that? Um, what about... Uh, turbans on a hard hat job? What about um, the fact that for a number of years, the taxi drivers at the Minneapolis-St. Paul airport would not, because they were Somali Muslims, they would not carry passengers who had alcohol. So whose problem is that? Is it the airport authority? Is it the taxi association? It certainly is the passengers issue. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, there are these ways in which our our traditions collide in a way. And we need to be able to negotiate that and understand it. Um, what is this, the, give it, so let's pick one of those um, yeah, and, sure. and describe um, a, a helpful way of, of, of tackling that, where, where, well, where everybody's religious beliefs, I mean, what's the goal really, that everybody feels respected and heard? I think respect and heard is certainly one, that understood, um, and recognized as um, people whose religious beliefs actually do matter. And I think the turban is a good example because it's not just a hat. It's not just something that you can take off and put the hard hat on or that you can take off uh, readily when you're going through the security line at the airport. Um, you know, it is a religious garment. And so part of the way of dealing with that is to dialogue and, and the dialogues between security agencies and uh, airport officials and 
Sikhs have been profuse in recent years, and also the dialogue between the uh, uh, armed forces that for a long time was unable to see that uh, that Sikhs could serve in the armed forces with their turban and do an effective job. Mm. And so now, as after years of going through this, Sikhs are allowed to serve as our army officers. But it is one step at a time. Is it ever a situation where the person with the religious beliefs or religious practices has to has to give up a little bit of their, you know, of their right. adherence? It, it certainly is. Um, and what they have to give up is, um, you know, sort of depends. I mean, I gave the example of the Minneapolis airport. Right. That went through a number of negotiations that were set up among all the interested parties, and eventually um, the Somali taxi drivers lost, and they had to um, either go to a job fair and find a different kind of job or go to the back of the line every time uh, uh, an alcohol-carrying passenger turned up at the front of the line. Um, You know, so it was not an easy situation. Um, and it was one, and it, as with many of these, that raises a lot of questions that don't necessarily have to do with the workplace, that have to do with the general feeling, um, even in a city like Minneapolis, of why are all these Somalis here to begin with? Um, so I think some of it comes down to America's uh long sort of getting used to the idea that we are a multi-ethnic country that has, over the last 50 years since the 1965 Immigration Act, uh, had significant immigration from uh, Chinese, Filipino, uh, South Asian, Indian, Vietnamese, Korean, Pakistani, Cambodian, Hmong, I mean, people that uh, in many parts of America, folks are just waking up to the fact that they're here mm-hmm. and they have religious commitments and religious traditions mm-hmm. and beliefs. So where does it uh, happen? Like, what is a what, what does pluralism look like in a neighborhood? It looks like um, people who have developed um, a, a sense of neighborness that is not necessarily inclusive, but that takes account of the fact of difference. Because living with difference is basically our future. And so um, it might mean that there is a uh, interfaith association that develops to have a blood drive in response to some civic tragedy. Or it might mean standing in solidarity with one another um, at a time when something has happened and there's a uh, you know, a shooting in the Pittsburgh uh, synagogue or at Mother Emanuel's church, that there are times when people come together uh, as human beings across the lines of faith. And it might also mean that, that that sort of what we call the interfaith infrastructure is something that has developed, and it has developed in uh, cities and towns all over the country. Um, these are the sort of local workshops of of civic engagement. Diana Eck is the founder and director of the Pluralism Project at Harvard University. Let's circle back to Simranjit Singh, the Sikh author, for one final note about this idea of religious groups standing up for one another in a pluralistic society. Singh was a senior in high school when the 9-11 terror attacks happened. Images of Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda in turbans and robes, invoking extreme ideas of Islam, fueled a wave of anti-Muslim hate across America. Muslims were attacked on the street, their businesses and mosques vandalized. The threats extended to anyone who looked or sounded like they might be from the Middle East. And that included turban-wearing Sikhs. Simranjit Singh's family in Texas started getting anonymous death threats on the phone. They stayed home from work and school for two weeks. Each night, they dial into a conference call with other Sikhs around the country. And the leaders would report out um, who had been attacked, uh, what their condition was, how they were doing, um, how their community was doing overall. And then, and then after we would get that report out, um, then, then we would move into, well, what, what should we do to ensure safety? 
and, and I listened to them come to the conclusion um, that you know it would be it would be easier for us to deflect the hate to to another place. It would, it would be honest, technically, to say um, you know we're not those guys, and let, let us tell you where those guys are instead. Hmm. Um, so those the, those were enticing propositions. I think especially because it would create immediate safety for us, right? Like we wouldn't have to run the risk of walking down the street and getting attacked, or at least it wouldn't be as risky. But in that context, and even now, uh, it was clear that ethically it wasn't the right thing to do, mm-hmm. to throw another community under the bus. And and strategically, it wasn't the right thing. Because if you deflect hate rather than confronting it, it's just going to come back for you around the corner. Mm-hmm. And so we, we made that... As a community, we made that decision uh, that we would stand in solidarity uh, with Muslims in a context of rising Islamophobia. And so in those moments of difficulty when you feel the pull to, to create safety, um, to, push, to push hate elsewhere, um, and, and potentially put other people in harm's way, that the actual um, decision to live with integrity and, and, and to welcome the risk uh, is it's a tough one, uh, but it's one that, that, that feels really important to practice. And Singh knew what solidarity looked like. He'd had coaches and friends stand up for him at school and on the playing field when his Sikh identity was challenged. In his memoir, The Light We Give, there's a story from adolescence that is still vivid in his mind. Singh's competitive soccer team had traveled to Austin for a match. And after a play, this the kid on another team, the opponent, when the, when the ref wasn't looking, came and tackled me. Sly tackled me, and uh, I went down, and you know he, he he yelled a couple of slurs at me, um, and, uh, and 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 they were nasty, um, and and I was I was ready to fight him, and and I started to, and then one of my one of my teammates came over, um, and he he was probably the other only religious minority on our team. He was he was Mormon. And he popped up and he said, I heard that and I got this. And I didn't know what he meant, but I got this. But he like pulled my shoulder back so that I wouldn't engage. And he started fighting the guy. (laughs) (laughs) And like, you know, we we might look at that and be like, well, violence is not the answer. And and sure. Um, But there was something really, I mean, we ended up both getting kicked out of the game. Hmm. Um, Red cards. uh, We ended up, you know, sitting on the sideline. But usually when we lost we would be super upset and and the rides home from from games out of town would be long um but this time it was really different like i was so touched by his willingness to stand up for me and i think he probably in in, in the same spirit that i feel real pain when i see other people being discriminated against because i know what that feels like i've been on the wrong side of it he must have felt the same thing. Like he's, he probably knows what it's like to be on the, on the outside looking in and mm-hmm. people saying all, all sorts of things to him. Uh, and so he's willing to, to step up and take action even though he wasn't being directly affected, putting himself out to, to help me in a moment and was yeah. willing to fight, fight for me, uh, literally. Like that was, that was a super powerful moment for me. Witnessing his community make the decision to stand with America's Muslims after 9-11 deepened Singh's own commitment to being visibly sick, to continue wearing his turban regardless of the risks. And importantly, it inspired him to embrace a role, a spiritual calling almost, as an educator of others, to lean into those moments when someone responds to his appearance with fear or ignorance as a chance for understanding. The challenge of, of our society today is... We are so unwilling to see people for who they are uh, that we rely on these on these flattened stereotypes, and so so that we can quickly make our judgments, put them in a box, and and and, and let it go. Mm-hmm. The way that I've that I've looked at it, and I know this isn't true for everyone, but for me, the opportunity to help someone see something new in a single encounter, like that's a gift, mm-hmm. and it doesn't necessarily have to change their lives or fix them forever or fix me forever or fix all the problems of the world. But like 
it's that that incremental step towards progress together that like if it takes 30 seconds to do that that's 30 seconds well spent and so i yeah i i don't mind that role at all and what what i really would love for people to learn how to do and it's something i'm learning how to do as well uh, is to honor to honor each other like for for the people that we are rather than who we assume each other to be Simranjit Singh knows he may be the only Sikh a person ever meets. If you are also a religious minority, you can probably relate. I've had that experience, being the only member of my faith at work or in a community setting. And like Singh, I've generally welcomed questions, because I'd rather people see me, not a flattened stereotype. But I also don't wear any visible symbols of my faith, so people don't stop me on the street like they do Singh. And I've wondered... What is the best way to start that conversation when I encounter someone who's so unfamiliar, they trigger some bias in me? Is it really okay to walk up to someone and ask to know more? Here's what Singh says. I think it starts with curiosity. The willingness to open oneself up uh, to other people's experiences. Uh, That's listening. Um, That's asking. That's... Um, approaching other people with with humility. And I found that, you know, when your intention is animated by curiosity, sincere curiosity, uh, that other people open up to you. They, they can see that. We live now in a culture where um, it's not always clear where and when it's appropriate to ask people questions about their lives. Um, and, and so it's important that one be sensitive uh, to what they're asking of other people uh, to share about themselves and, and their communities and their experiences. But I think when you find the right opportunity, um, whatever form it may take, you know, you might find someone who enjoys and is willing uh, to engage with you. Uh, you might find a book or a movie that helps open your eyes. But I think seeking those out uh, as opposed to being passive uh, and waiting for them to fall in your lap uh, is, is, a, is a really important practice in terms of cultivating that curiosity and helping to open yourselves up to others. Top of Mind is a BYU Radio podcast. Today's episode was produced by me, James Hoops, and Elizabeth Miller. We had music and sound design by Christian Mockatel and Mitchell Towsley. If you haven't already, would you take a moment to leave a rating or give us a review on the podcast app where you're listening to Top of Mind? That will help other people find us and feel the power of thinking again. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. We'll talk soon.